Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Equity. This is an equity shot focused on the brand new WeWork S1 IPO filing. I am here in Providence. Kate Clark is down in New York. Kate, how are you? I am great. I am coming to you live from a blue bottle coffee. So I apologize for any excess noise. It was the best we could do. We didn't know when we worked with drop their S1, so we did what we could. Yeah, and so if Kate doesn't sound perfect, well, you know, is this or not do anything at all? So we decided to go ahead and bring you the latest because uh, honestly, we've been really excited about this offering. Now, up top, my job is to go over the top line numbers and then we're gonna dig into some voting rights stuff, talk a little bit about Adam Newman, the CEO, and then talk about how they talked about the media itself. So up top, WeWork has a very impressive uh, top line growth. The revenue expansion has been tremendous, grew more than 100% to 886 million in 2017, and then managed a shocking 1.82 billion in revenue in 2018. And if you narrow down even uh, closer to where we are today, looking at the first half of 2018 and the first half of 2019, WeWork went from 763.8 million in revenue to 1.54 billion. So that's the uh, the highest level you can possibly look at the company through. Kate, I'm really curious quickly, did you expect the company to have that rapid of growth going into this S1? Yeah, I think I did see, expect to see growth like this. Um, to be honest, I think uh, I actually even expected losses to be larger than they are. I mean, didn't we previously see WeWork? losing just as much money as they were bringing in in revenue. Yeah. So one way to think about that is if you look at WeWork's net loss in calendar 2018, it was about $1.93 billion. And previously, we had kind of known through some uh, media releases that it was about $1.9 billion. Now, if you read a lot of the coverage today about the company's S1, you'll hear people talk about how some of their uh, recent losses seem to be a little bit better. The problem is, uh, there is some other income that comes in to alleviate the company's H1 2019 net loss. So, Kate, I think it's best to look at the company's loss from operations, and that was uh, $1.37 billion in the first half of this year compared to a much slimmer uh, net loss of $900 million. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. But if we take a step back, we can expect to see net losses for 2019 hitting as high as, say, $1.8 billion. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't think that the 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 income the company reported that saved its net loss a bit in the first half of the year will repeat in the second half. So it could even be sharper than that. But if you look at its operating loss, it could be more like two point five billion. You know, there's a lot of flexibility here, but the numbers are enormous uh, and quite negative. And the F one actually did say um, that they don't anticipate being profitable in I think it said the near future. Which is to say, they have no idea when they ever, ever ever reach profitability. It's not like they're giving us a ballpark of say eighteen months or four years. Like they they aren't seeing it as something in the realm of possibility for a while. Yeah, and and one thing that also is a bit hard to parse out in this S one. Uh, normally, we get kind of a revenue number, we get a cost of revenue figure, and from there we can kind of gist out what the company's gross margins are and how much gross profit it generates. And, and if you're not a financial person, don't worry. Gross profit is kind of what's available for the company to pay its operating costs. So once you take away the expenses dedicated to just serving revenue itself, then you have gross profit. And from there, you deduct op costs to get kind of an operating profit number. WeWork doesn't really give you that. What they have instead are what are called location operating expenses, which is a kind of similar number to cost of revenue, but not exactly so far as I can tell uh, from reading this document. And so it's a bit hard to tell Kate uh, really how high quality its revenue is and therefore kind of where to value it. Uh, I, I'm still honestly trying to figure out how to, how to figure that out. 
Um, is this a, the most complicated S1, Kate, you've ever seen? Because I think it is for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if it's the most complicated S1 that you've seen, it's definitely the most complicated that I've seen. I know you've looked at more S1s than I have, certainly. And let's just remind everyone, like, WeWork is a real estate company. Sure, it has tech-enabled services built on top, and I think that's something Dan Freemass was just talking about with us yesterday on our last episode. But it's still a real estate company, and I think that may be why, you know, as us trained to look at tech S1s, this is a lot different. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a unique beast, and I think that's why we're struggling. But, Kate, before we talk about voting control on the CEO, let me give some people some notes about um, how fast it's grown membership, because it's kind of a non-financial number everyone can get their head around. So in the, when WeWork finished the first half of 2018, it had 268,000 members. And it grew that number to 527,000 members uh, at the end of H1 2019. So kind of June 2018 to June 2019, essentially doubled its membership. And it grew the enterprise membership percentage from 30% to 40% in that time frame. So it's seen more big clients and it's also seen really rapid uh, expansion in seats. So to me, those are what we would hope for a company that was investing this much money kind of, you know, Kate, as, as fast as it has been lately. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think now is a good time just to talk a little bit about some of the growth plans they've indicated in this S1. So WeWork is already operating 528 co-working spaces in 111 cities in 29 countries, um, which you just mentioned, 527,000 memberships, 50% uh, of which are outside of the U.S. So they want to add something like 300 more locations pretty pretty quickly. And ultimately, they claim that their total addressable market opportunity is worth $1.7 trillion, which is a market cap uh, larger than that of Apple or Microsoft. So they have very, very ambitious goals that um, seem, uh, as with anything that Weaver does, perhaps overambitious. Yeah, I think that they view the market as very non-penetrated. They think there's a lot more space out there to get more buildings set up, get a lot more people into them. And that's where I begin to kind of break from the company. I mean, they have... How many buildings in San Francisco? A number. People that I know work at them. I, I don't think we could double it, you know? Uh, so I'm curious if how many other prime markets are, are not as uh, we worked as they could be and if that'll limit their ability to grow in the uh, kind of short to medium term. Let's talk about the, um, the voting side of things, Kate. You wanted to bring up the majority voting control and uh, the CEO in particular. What's going on there? Yeah, so I mean, it's not uncommon for founder-led companies going public to want to maintain control of the company. We've, we've talked about this before, and we've seen it with Snap, we've seen it with other companies. But um, the WeWork S1 has told us that Adam Newman, the co-founder and CEO of WeWork, will ma maintain majority voting rights as the company goes public, which means that he'll be able to determine a lot of the outcomes of any, anything discussed, say, on the board um, internally. He's going to maintain control. The thing about this is that when you go public, oftentimes the CEO founder loses some of that control. It's an inherent part of the process if you give up uh, voting rights. But in this case, Adam Newman is not doing that. And I, I, I doubt you're surprised. I'm not surprised at all because this is a company that their entire identity has been wrapped around Newman. He's quite a character in the tech world. He's made um, a big reputation of himself. Uh, I think the Wall Street Journal said that he sort of tosses out pixie dust and it just People listen to him and believe in him and they believe in his vision. So uh, WeWork has a lot riding in him. And I think it only makes sense that he will maintain that control. Do I think it's a good thing? Um, ultimately, probably not. Um, he may not make the best decisions in the long run. I guess we'll just have to sit back and see. 
Yeah. So one thing that, that I've been curious about is how that private market pixie dust will convert to a public company. Because I think Adam Newen had a lot of flexibility when talking to private market investors about what he wanted to do and his big visions, and what the company might look like in 10 years. But when you're a public company CEO, there are mores and rules about what you can and can't say and how you say it and how that could be indicative of future performance. And so I wonder how the shtick, for lack of a better term, will convert. And I think I'm mirroring you here by saying that I don't think it's going to go particularly well, especially when the company is desperate to bring on, what is it, $6 billion in debt before the IPO and maybe another $4 billion through the IPO. I mean, when you need $10 billion more, you can't really talk your way out of that scale of, of loss and, and burn. So I'm concerned. I think WeWork is a little aware of the fact that the Silicon Valley pixie dust won't translate into, the, into Wall Street, into the public markets. And I think that's partially why they, were, they are seeking sort of simultaneously to, to raise that $6 billion um, loan ahead of going public um, because, you know, they can't raise $9 billion in their IPO as much as they might like to. Um, I think $3 billion, which is what we've heard, we don't actually know what they're targeting yet, but I think um, $3 billion is even ambitious. And I think they'll be able to do it, but I do think the IPO is going to be very shaky. I mean, we saw it with Uber and we've seen it with Lyft um, performing after its IPO poorly. I think WeWork will be uh, perhaps more extreme because there's even less of a proven model there um, than I think we saw with Uber. Hey, Kate. So one thing that I was doing, getting ready for this little chat we're going to have was going back through the, uh, the WeWork S1. I'm going to walk you through some numbers here just because they blow my mind. So I want to go back to the first quarter of, of 2018. And we're going to look at the company's operating loss from Q1 18 through Q2 19. And I'm just going to kind of say the numbers out loud and watch which direction uh, these things go. So Q1 2018 operating loss, WeWork, about 296 million. Q2 18, 382 million. Q3, 448 looks like. Uh, Q4 2018, 584 million. Q1 19, 639. And Q2 19, 729, if I'm reading that correctly. So a consistent march north in terms of operating losses from this company. And keep in mind, that does not include things like uh, investing cash flow, which is in a separate kind of bucket. So the company is, is really, on an operational basis, getting far less profitable as time goes along. And it's going public, or it's trying to, it filed to go public publicly on a day that the markets fell apart. I mean, to me, it, this feels a bit ominous. No, I agree with you. And I mean, don't you think uh, they were kind of like, well, we better go out now. I mean, if they're going to continue to have these losses pile up, and the market is so good right now, that's why we've seen so many really, really big tech unicorns go public this year. Uh, we work, of course, is probably very strategic about the timing. So would, would you say that's kind of why we're expecting this to happen as for this next month? I think so. But here's the, here's the question. If the market keeps falling, if the trade tensions keep happening and the recession fears keep coming up and the yield curve is still inverted, is there any chance, Kate, that this IPO doesn't go out when we expect it to? Or will they just find a price point low enough that it can actually happen? I think it's going to happen. At this point, what are their options we work out? Continue to raise private debt, sure, that's an option. Our loans. SoftBank obviously is more than willing to continue plowing money into WeWork, but I mean, it's, you know, we didn't even mention this, but WeWork is valued at $47 billion. It's one of the most valuable companies in the world. It's, it's what, a decade old? Well, founded in 2011, it's eight years old. So it's about time for it to make that transition. I think this is the only option for them now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm probably a bit too worried, but I'm also watching the Dow drop like 700 points as we record this. Yeah. All right. 
We're going to, we're going to do two more things. We're going to talk a little bit, a little bit about the enterprise membership percentage over at WeWork. And then Kate has known about the media, but here's a bit of in the weed stuff that I was looking at uh, while I was going through the S1. In uh, 2016, everybody, uh, WeWork's enterprise membership percentage, which is the, the percent of, of seats it has rented out that go to large companies as opposed to small companies, was 18%. That number rose to 27%, I'm uh, sorry, 28% in 2007. Notably, it reached 41% in the first quarter of 2019, but fell to 40% in the second quarter. So I don't know of any other sequential quarterly decline in that figure, so I'm, uh, I, I'm curious to see if the company will be able to reignite growth in that percentage or if it is kind of capped out around the 40% mark. And as context, the reason why that matters is if the economy slows and WeWork begins to lose individual contractors and small businesses that were clients, people have presumed that these larger companies will be more stable clients. So driving up that percentage was effectively an insurance policy against recession. But now it went down in the last quarter. So it's, it's higher than it used to be, Kate. But you know, to see it go down like that certainly doesn't inspire me and give me lots of confidence. Okay, well, before we close out, um, I think I want to hit on two more things, actually. One of them is just key stakeholders. So WeWork has raised $8.4 billion in, com- in both debt and equity funding, which makes it one of the most well-capitalized private companies ever to go public, which is interesting in itself. But there are only a few entities that actually own notable stakes in WeWork uh, north of about 5%, and that is Benchmark, which is a very, very respected venture capital firm. They own 32 million free IPO shares, so they're going to make a lot of money off of this IPO. Secondly, uh, JP Morgan owns 18 million shares, and of course, SoftBank, via the Vision Fund, owns a whopping 114 million shares. So these three different parties are going to make a ton of money off this IPO, which is crazy. And I mean, Benchmark is not, uh, was a huge Uber investor, so they've had a phenomenal year. I mean, this has got to be record-breaking for them. So I think that's, uh, you know, something of note. And then just to end on, I just thought this was really interesting, but in the S1, it does, it kind of has a little negative shout out to the media and says that any any potential Wall Street public market investors should really not read stories about WeWork. And they really just shouldn't pay attention to quote press stories because the IPO perspective has all the information that they may need to make a well-informed investment. Now, I would not agree with that. So if you're listening and you're thinking about investing in WeWork as a public company, I would read the stories about the company, which will teach you a lot about the culture and its history. But it's interesting that they actually said that in the S1. Yeah. So this S1 is not is not very clear. And I was going to avoid bringing this up, but do you recall, Kate, the whole discussion of community-adjusted EBITDA and that entire... Oh, yes. I remember. All right. So everyone made fun of WeWork for essentially making up its own adjusted profit metric that stripped out stuff that it didn't like and kept things that it did. It's a bit like, I don't know, think of your own personal analogy. But I was really excited to see kind of what the company was going to do if it was going to bring up that metric inside of this uh, S1 filing. The answer is no. They got rid of it. I don't think it kind of flew past the SEC, if that makes sense. No, I don't so they, think so. Yeah, not a surprise per se, but also I was curious. (laughs) But they have a new metric that is an adjusted profit metric, and it comes in two forms. I'm just going to read this sentence to you, and then I want, Kate, you to tell me if you know what the hell this is. So here's the first one. Adjusted EBITDA, including non-cash gap straight line lease cost, or adjusted EBITDA excluding non-cash gap straight line lease cost. Now, Kate, does that make sense to you at all? Sounds like a Mad Lib. How many words is that? Uh, it's Jesus. 48 words. 
give or take. I mean, it sounds like nonsense. It does. I, I went through and read, I think it was note 13 or it was note 15 in the uh, appendix of the S1 to figure out what this meant. And it turns out there's, uh, we work often like leases a building, but doesn't pay rent on it while it builds it out. And there's an accounting situation in which you have to kind of uh, prorate rent over the whole, sorry, lease rent for the whole period from their cost structure, and they moved that around. And it, it is the epitome of like an accounting um, game, if you will. And so for them to present this metric as a better way to view their profit is, is, is silly to me, especially when they say this S1 has all the things you could need. Don't worry about the media. So you know what? Maybe everyone's smarter than us, Kate, and they can figure it out. But in the meantime, it's an occluded S1 for a very unprofitable company. And yeah shockingly negative even apart from their net and operating losses so who knows what it's worth but uh talk about a learning experience for us reading through this document today yeah i think you just you kind of just hit on the takeaways but i just uh, to reiterate this is one of the strangest s1s we've seen i think there's going to be a lot more work kind of pouring through this i know i still have a lot more to read and um yeah i mean this is going to be a very bizarre interesting sort of like yeah yeah, and we are going to be back with notes about the WeWork uh, IPO as we get closer to pricing. And then, of course, we will give you a little bit more uh, once it does eventually go public, provided that it happens in a reasonable time frame. But, Kate, thank you for dialing in from Blue Bottle. Yep. Please have an espresso and a little waffle. <laughs> I love that place. And uh, we'll talk to everyone really soon. All right, bye. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.